the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Hello, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. I'm sick again. Sorry. I know. I know. You're under the weather. I know. It's it's that season. It's February. You know, just kind of can't help it. I always seem to be the last one that gets sick, though. I think yeah. I'm escaping and that I never do. I'm glad you, uh, you're you powering through it for this episode. I mean, it's our Valentine's episode. It is. You know, and uh, I wasn't going to miss this one at all. I think we uh, chose an appropriate film for Valentine's Day, and it's that's uh, one of the most romantic movies I've yeah. I've ever heard of, really. That's a Rob Reiner and Stephen King uh, second collaboration with Misery, yeah, from 1990, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan. I don't think this is a movie that we ever kind of like talked about, sort of doing, and then it just sort of came in a like a quick. Yeah, it did. I think we were um, we were just kind of thinking, uh, planning ahead, and. Yeah, Valentine's came up, and I think it was started off as a joke, and then we were like, "Oh, wait a second! Actually, no, I like that." Yeah, we were talking about other wintertime movies yeah. too, because we like to we like our themes. Yeah, um, and this movie definitely feels like very wintertime, stir crazy, claustrophobic. Oh my gosh, so much right now as we're watching it in the background, and Kathy Bates is shaking a bottle of pee at James Con. There's so much subtle terror in this movie. Yeah. And um, just the whole idea of claustrophobia and oh, just that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, this this is one that really has a lot of uh, psychological terror. But of course, there is some physical violence and terror as well. But it's a very, um, I feel like, balanced throughout the movie. It's again one of those movies like Deliverance that if you haven't seen and know nothing about it, you probably know one scene from it. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's so much more than than just that. Well, we've got a lot to talk about with Misery. We're going to talk about the cast, because this is uh, one of those films that I think really, they're very confined, mm-hmm. um, so you're not really getting to, you as, a, as an audience member don't really get to move from this room very much because... Uh, the character that James Conn plays is confined to a bed for pretty much the duration of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but these two actors really keep things alive and and make it very exciting and really just amazing performances by both of the lead cast, Kathy yeah. Bates and James Conn. And we'll go, we'll go into the just couple supporting cast members. It's a pretty small crew on this one, but even even those characters are, are pretty important to the telling of this movie. Yeah. And we'll talk about, uh, so this is, gosh, our third Stephen King adaptation. I guess we like Stephen King. We, yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about uh, the difference between the book and the movie and, and how uh, it sort of went from Stephen King's hands to William Goldman's hands to Rob Reiner's hands. Mm-hmm. And kind of the inspiration and feelings behind, um, you know, the writing of this and why Rob Reiner was drawn to it. Also, the script a little bit deeper on the characters as well and probably go into that vicious ending of this movie too yeah what an ending 
and we'll we've got some you know we'll talk a little bit about the behind the scenes the production of the movie mm-hmm. so a lot, lot of good stuff coming up from misery um then we'll get into our picks of the week i stayed uh with the stephen king kathy bates collaboration and that was uh 1995's dolores claiborne i love that movie it is, is a grim grim film it is heavy but man is it good yeah a lot of, a lot of dark movies that i watched <laughs> over this week yeah um i stayed you know i stayed with kathy bates she really is such a an amazing actress and i think misery is my first of kathy bates's films and then second was my pick of the week that being fried green tomatoes so a little bit of uh, livening it up. Not so depressing. I'm curious here. A little about f- depressing. I'm curious here about fried green tomatoes. I, I, rem- I, re- I think I saw that in the theaters when it came out, and I think that was the last time I saw it, and I think I was too young for that. I, I remember almost nothing of that movie. So oh, that's kind of great. I'm, I'm curious to. I it's one it's one movie that I feel like if you know it and you love it, like you know everything about it, but. Yeah, I, I think it can get forgotten. To me, it's definitely not forgotten, but um, I asked a group of people, and I'd say about like 70% of them have been like, I think I've heard of that, or I haven't seen that, so kind of sealed the deal. And we'll uh, always round things out with a Murray moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into our first clip from Misery, Lindsay, can you set up for us what is this tale of terror about? What we're going into here. It's a pretty simple story. A well-known author crashes his car um, in the middle of a snowstorm only to be rescued by his self-proclaimed number one fan. So he's bedridden and helpless, um, but the nightmare really begins after uh, only a a few minutes into the movie, um, this tale of mental and physical anguish while being held captive. And just imagine all of that being done to you by someone that's completely infatuated with you. So about an hour and 40 minutes of this very intense, heavy subject matter that is some, I know that sounds really, that sounds like a lot, but man, is this an entertaining movie for not leaving one room too. Yeah. For the most part. For the most part. We'll go to first clip, then we'll come back. We'll talk about misery. I know I'm only 40 pages into your book, but. Well, what? Nothing. What is it? What's ridiculous? Who am I to make a criticism to someone like you? It's all right, I can take it. Well, it's brilliantly written, but then everything you write is brilliant. Pretty rough stuff. The swearing, Paul. There, I said it. Yeah, the profanity bothers you. It has no nobility. These are slum kids. I was a slum kid. Everybody talks like that. They do not? What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There! Look there! See what you made me do! Oh, Paul, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, Sometimes I get so worked up. Can you ever forgive me? 
I love you, Paul. Your mind, your creativity, that's, that's all I meant. So the book Misery by Stephen King came out in 1987 and upon the book's release Stephen King had you know said in interviews that the book was very much about him fearing that he was stuck writing just for his fans if he wrote something outside of the horror genre would his fans accept that or would they hate it you know when he knew that he had a set fan base he was already a successful writer you know and he definitely had some short stories where yeah. they weren't yeah, you know yeah. stuck specifically in the horror genre but you know that was a sort of fear of like his fans turning against him but then you know many many years later it was like 20 years later he had a different take on what he sort of confessed what misery the book was actually about yeah so Stephen King did come out and say that this book was I mean very much written about his battle with substance abuse and the only thing I heard him say was it was his battle with dope so I don't know what exactly that meant but his battle with drugs and being dependent and what uh, what it did to his body and how he was so used to feeling alone and separated from everything and that even like the scene where Annie Wilkes hobbles Paul Sheldon was like um, his attempt to to stop that from progressing and, and getting worse and you can you know you can definitely see that in the story but I can also see like his original uh, meaning behind it, which is much more obvious, I think, on, on the surface. Yeah. But, but learning this, you're like, oh, yeah, in, something in, deeper there. In the book, definitely, it's not really showcased in the movie, but the book is definitely uh, much more about addiction, like Paul, the Paul Sheldon character uh, very much gets hooked on the painkillers that Annie Wilkes has been giving him. But in the movie, you know, obviously he stops taking the painkillers mm-hmm. like, she quickly. uses like there's a lot of like sh- her using that against him right like there's a a little bit of punishment for yeah she for she kind of withdraws the the pain pills because she knows he needs them you know not just for to make the pain go away but his yeah. you know he's suffering actual withdrawals but and there are so, so many you know differences between the book and the movie but um, as far as breaking down a book like this to transfer to a movie sometimes those things are necessary yeah. And, you know, I guess it's a good time to talk a little bit about that. You know, there was, uh, we don't want to get too much into the book because we are talking about the movie here, but William Goldman, who was uh, a longtime screenwriter and also a novelist himself, adapted the Stephen King book and uh, definitely changed uh, a handful of things. And I think, too, the book itself is is very, I mean, this movie is pretty dark, but the book <laughs> is very dark. And it, and also the book can be pretty grueling, you know, because a lot of what the in the book, it's, it's Paul Sheldon's thoughts and him trying to keep himself from going crazy because he's mm-hmm. stuck in a bed for 24 hours a day. In the movie that, you know, things kind of get condensed and they add some excitement and they also uh, cut down on some of the gore because, like, the hobbling scene... Yep. Though, though it, I think it's very it's effective, effective and movie. violent in the movie. In the book, she actually cuts off his foot. I f- forget what she says, but it's something along the lines of like, you know, you don't no time, don't want to get an infection, so she cauterizes it with it's a blowtorch. Awful, awful, uh, just terrible. 
And uh, so she if also, this movie is painful, just read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she also uh, cuts off his thumb and then puts puts it on a cake and like serves it to him because it he just, complains about the end missing on the typewriter yeah. that she buys for him, right? So yeah. So yeah. there's uh there's very in a, you know in the scene with the the Buster the police officer she actually runs over his head with a with a lawnmower as if it's not awful enough in the movie like she blows him away with a double barrel shotgun from behind but but it's mowing him down with a lawnmower but it's pretty it's the book is pretty gory and graphic and in the the movie tones it down i think for for a good measure i think it's it's better off leaving some of this stuff up to the imagination and in some ways rob reiner it's not really what he I don't think naturally would go for either would be a, the gore factor. I think this for him, you know, he probably wouldn't show his kids immediately because it would be kind of jarring, you know, if, you, if you're Rob Reiner. Yeah, and what I, you've done up until this And point. I know Rob Reiner sent an interview that he specifically, you know, when he was working with William Goldman with the script, like that hobbling scene, He that was the main thing he wanted to change because he felt – you know, the movie, he wanted there to be sympathy for the Annie Wilkes character, and he wanted the audience to sympathize a little bit with her illness and sympathize a little bit with her infatuation with Paul Sheldon. But he felt that after she cut off his foot, if she did that in the movie, that the audience would know that would just be too horrific that an audience couldn't bounce back from that mm-hmm. and they couldn't sympathize with her, you know, toward the end of the movie when they have the the big fight scene. Yeah. And Rob Reiner did want his movie version of this story to be more of a chess match than it being about the gore factor, because it is, like you said, pretty, pretty horrific in a lot of scenes. And when you watch this movie, both Annie and Paul are you you see this like push and pull and you don't know you don't know who's messing with who if they are messing with the other one. And it's it's very psychological. And I think in order to capture that battle in the book, um, visually on screen, it was done so so very well in this movie. Yeah, I love the uh, sort of the use of just the, the expressions that the actors have, especially uh, Paul Sheldon. Like in the movie, uh, all the expressions that James Conn does, like reacting to Annie and mm-hmm. the things that she's doing or the things that she's saying. Because in the book, it's very much he's analyzing things uh, with words and his thoughts that you're reading. So a lot of it is like you're imagining his expressions, but he's also making a comment on how it's a chess match versus versus like watching this unfold as a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movie's like much more exciting uh, than the book in, in, in many, many ways. And I, I think, you know, attributing that a lot to William Goldwyn, someone who – uh, is a novelist himself and has also written screenplays. And I think that was like a perfect match for somebody to take. Mm-hmm. Um, he did know, The Princess Bride, right, with Rob Reiner? Yeah. And he also adapted uh, All the President's Men, which um, that's a book that I had to read like three times. In the movie, I had to watch like two times because there's just so many freaking characters. I, I can't yeah. imagine, like, yeah. it's hard to believe that that book was adapted to a movie. I mean, that that's a lot of characters to deal with. And so, you know, this I can see being the adaption being a little bit nicer because you just have a few characters. But again, you're also having to condense, you know, this really long book and all their, you know, back and forth play into an hour and 40 minutes. And I think he does that really, really well. Yeah. And I think, you know, he he uh, expanded the the Buster character a little bit. 
He's um, the the sheriff. The sheriff, by, um, Richard Farnsworth. Richard Farnsworth, yeah, because a lot of him wasn't in the book. Like in the book, you're pretty we're pretty much stuck with Paul and his thoughts, and you know they we are stuck in this room in the movie for a, quite a long time, yeah. but. They, you know, I think both him and Rob Reiner knew as a movie, the audience needs to like get out of this room, even though the character himself can't. And so they expanded the Buster character investigating uh, the the missing Paul Sheldon case and also uh, brought in the character of Virginia, the wife of yeah. Richard Farmsworth, who also is like his sidekick. And his deputy. They, have, they have a lot of, I, I think, like all their back and forth, just really hysterical. And I think it also adds like, the humor that the movie needs so that it's not so uh, dark and depressing. And Rob Reiner said it was very intentional to add in the the humor, uh, the humorous parts between them. And it's not like it's, you know, knee slapper, but it's funny how with um, as few scenes as Virginia and Buster have, that they're like, you know, you can tell that they're an old married couple and they're just kind of poking and prodding at each other, but that they love each other. And they're also, you know, basically the two only cops in the town. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that sort of like a lived in relationship where like you can kind of poke fun at each other. You know, these characters love each other. And I think that that's something that's it's really hard. I mean, for how few scenes they have, mm-hmm. it really pops on screen. It does. I mean, yeah. It's like you, you feel like, you know, the characters like really, really well. And I think, yeah, they they nail those roles. But also, you know, you juxtapose that with Annie and Paul, who are, you know, this other kind of like weird couple that um, Annie's trying to force into happening. I, th- I think it makes it even jump up a little bit more at you makes it more noticeable. So yeah, let's you know get into that a little bit, the characters, before we go on to mm-hmm. our next clip. It, it's, it always seems the case with movies where if you have a very um, simple story, it's more of a character-driven film and, and vice versa. If sure. There's more you know, plot and action going on. There's, there's less character development. I think this is like a perfect blend. You know, there, I mean, the, the story is simple. Yes, but there's a lot of layers happening. Um, there's a lot going on with the multiple issues that the characters are facing. And also we get a little glimpse of Paul Sheldon, like where he's come from and where he's headed with his career. And with Annie, Wilkes' character, you know, it's slowly revealed her history, her past, yeah, they her do checkered a, past. They do a good job of dropping that in just by dialogue. Yeah, and I and, and I love how like you know this this sort of like a little bit unfolds, but we get to know these characters really, really well. We spend a lot of time with the characters, but it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of action and interplay going on because there are, like you said, it's kind of like a chess match. As an audience member kind of put yourself in the shoes of Paul Sheldon and you know you immediately start thinking to your, this is definitely one of those kind of like survivalist movies in a way yeah. where you're thinking like well what would I do in this situation like would I hit you know would I exhaust every single you know idea also being yeah. in that much pain because that's the thing that I think that the movie does show is like this character is in excruciating pain those scenes where his legs like hit the ground and he's crawling and you know, I mean, if, if, if you've ever had like a, just a sprained ankle or thrown your back out, just the tiniest, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, yeah. kind of moving around how much that hurts. I mean, imagine like the the damage that had been done to this guy's legs and then like having, you know, having to like kind of pull yourself to, to go investigate this house to figure out a way out so you can find, you know, 
call for help. Yeah. And a lot of the fleshing out of the Paul Sheldon character, actually, Rob Reiner got Warren Beatty involved a little bit. There was a brief amount of time when Warren Beatty was maybe going to do this, but he just couldn't kind of commit to the role. But he did offer up a lot of ideas. You know, if you were stuck in this situation, what would you do? And, you know, Warren Beatty's you know, thinking like, if, if I was this man stuck in this, I would exhaust every opportunity, you know, that I could, any, any idea that I could come up with. I mean, you're, you're stuck in this room and, I, you know, Justin, you and I were trying to figure out like, how long is, you know, Paul Sheldon held hostage basically in here? And it seems like it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of months. It's at least six months, I, I would feel. At least, yeah. And as we talk about these characters and we say things, you know, like they're pitted against each other. What's interesting about this relationship is that it's not like they're, they're fighting the whole movie, like overtly fighting in some ways, like Paul really gives into her a lot and kind of goes with it, even though he's, you know, com- completely miserable. What else is he going to do? He can't move. And he realizes that she is crazy. And I really shouldn't say, you know, crazy, this blanket statement of crazy. The Annie Wilkes character really is deeper than just a blanket statement of saying crazy. Like She is, um, yes, she is cunning and malicious and brutal. Um, but we see plenty of scenes where she is uh, immensely depressed. Um, you know, she eats very unhealthily. She idealizes romance. And I mean, that that plays straight up into why she's obsessed with Paul Sheldon's books. And, um, you know, we we get in just by a little bit of dialogue, like, we understand what was happening in her life when she got obsessed with Paul Sheldon's books. And it all just kind of snowballs into this kind of obsessive, compulsive, like probably borderline schizo personality disorder with a side of sadomasochism. You know, she's she's very deep. And at the same time, you know, she's all of these various disorders. Um, you you feel bad for her. I mean, at least I do. I feel bad for the woman up until even the very end. But she's a I, I appreciate how they tried to uh, portray her in, in this movie. And also like with the Paul Sheldon character, I don't think that he really has this like deep hatred for Annie's character until the hobbling happens. And then mm-hmm, post mm-hmm. that scene, you see a very different side of Paul Sheldon, which I really like how they kick that forward. Yeah. Um, you see that he's no longer like scared to anger her but then he also knows how to make her happy and there is a scene where he's almost finished writing the new misery book for her and she's so he sees how excited she is he sees like how his work can have an effect on somebody and there's that brief moment where you see that he's happy that he's pleased her yeah i mean you see kind of almost like a tear form in his eye that he he wasn't just doing this spitefully i mean he he was wanting to write something that would make her happy. Yeah, he actually did put work into uh, writing this book. And it, that, it, and it made she him forced feel, him to. And it basically. made him, but it made him feel good for a moment there. Like they have this moment together where they're both. He, she's feeling good by being a part of this, and he's feeling good that it's like reciprocated. You know, like every person who's creating something, you know, you feel good if, some, if someone responds to it positively and emotionally on such like a big level like she does with his with his book that, you know, he's 
trying to write to save his life. Yeah, right to save his life. And just one final thing here before we go to another clip. The character of Annie Wilkes, we, we get a little bit um, of insight as to her past through little things that she throws in while talking to Paul. And Paul doesn't have any context to back this up until he's, you know, hobbling around in his wheelchair in her house and finds this scrapbook, which just... Be- just it's just a scrapbook basically of her crimes um which i like to keep around the house too you know just something to remind me you know the terrible things i've done in my past and the character of annie it's alluded to that she's killed her father um a doctor a nurse at the hospital she worked at and then goes on to kill uh numerous infants and the backstory behind that is there actually was a woman named Janine Jones who, although she was never obsessed with an author, um, she was guilty of um, injecting uh, children to kind of induce this emergency situation, and she would be the person that would try to revive them and try to save them. But she would end up looking like a heroic character, but there were numerous infants that died. So this was kind of based on, you know, a little bit of a little bit of reality here. That's very Stephen King to, to throw something like yeah. that. Very um, freaky. Yeah, very freaky. They called freaky. her the uh, dragon lady in the newspapers in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So it is kind of extra creepy. Yeah. But we'll go to another clip. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast, and we'll talk about a uh, little bit of the behind-the-scenes making of Misery. What? You've been out of your room. No, I haven't. Paul. My little ceramic penguin in the study always faces due south. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Ceramic penguin. Is this what you're looking for? I know you've been out twice, Paul. First, I couldn't figure out how you did it. But last night, I found your key. I know I left my scrapbook out. I can imagine what you might be thinking of me. But you see, Paul, it's all okay. Last night it came so clear. I realize you just need more time. Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Paul, do you know about the early days of the Kimberly diamond mines? Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Don't worry, they didn't kill them. That would be like junking your Mercedes just because it had a broken spring. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working, but they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Any for God's sake. Shh, darling. Trust me. For God's sake. It's for the best. Annie, please! Almost done. Just one more. So we want to talk about the cast a little bit more with Misery. This was, for Kathy Bates, uh, one of her early, early roles is like a main, or really, I guess you could say her first role is like 
the main, yeah. you know, marquee actor in a, in a big Hollywood production. She was mostly a, a theater actor up mm-hmm. until Misery. And James Caan, though they were looking for like a well-known actor, I mean, I don't think James Caan was like a super household name. I mean, granted, you know, he has like uh, iconic roles in cinema as Sonny Corleone and the Godfather movie. He he had done like a lot of gritty like 70s movies and he's worked with some great directors, but he wasn't in any like what I would consider to be like super gigantic mainstream blockbuster movies like outside of The Godfather. But definitely you know. a well-respected yeah, actor. Yeah, well-respected and, yeah. and well-known for sure. But. Yeah. And always great at his craft and was always very talented yeah. like from kind of the get-go. Yeah. And yeah, Kathy Bates had been in a ton of movies before I'm okay not a ton but um she had been in movies before misery but they were mainly all supporting roles and and kind of not in I briefly I think she was in Dick Tracy but like not very but not very much if I remember correctly and that one that came out the same year too as misery yeah yeah yeah, exactly so a little bit later but shoot for William Goldman to do you know the adaptation of the Stephen King story with you in mind writing this what a honor I don't know like you know you're you're an actress primarily stage actress and to have a lead role like this written for you or with you in mind that's pretty that's that's a testament to your talents yeah and Rob Reiner and both William Goldman I think both were gunning for once they yeah Kathy had Bates. her in yeah, mind they, they wanted her yeah and it is a very much like I, I read listened to an interview with Kathy Bates recently and she said she loves that misery was her first film because it was this big Hollywood production with uh, you know seasoned professionals like that had worked on a lot of productions and it had all these these big dazzling things for her that you know, kind of scared her, like, uh, being on a big set with all this talent and working across from a, a known actor. Mm-hmm. But she said at the same time, the script and the film allowed her to use all these things that she'd used in the theater that she'd come up on. And so it was like this perfect balance of, of the two worlds. And, and really that, you know, this movie is very much like it, if, you know, the, I mean, this was... Uh, it was a stage play later. It was later. a stage play yeah. later, yeah. And I think Bruce Willis plays the... And I think Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, yeah, plays. Yeah. Um, that'd be interesting to see. Right. But but it does feel very much like a this could be easily transferred to theater, and, and, and it was. And I think Kathy Bates had come off of a role, or sometime shortly before Misery, had come off of a role of someone that was very depressed and kind of suicidal and like very dark. So she said that she didn't really have to do too much prep work to get into like that type of like mental state, um, which could be daunting, I would imagine. Rob Reiner joked because he said, what we're going to do is we're going to take one of the more physical <laughs> actors, uh, yeah. you know, of, of, of his generation and like confine him to a bed into a wheelchair and where he has to, or he's going to get very, very frustrated. And he thought that would like work toward the, the, the frustration of the character Paul Sheldon would, yeah. would have. And I think that's a great idea. And, you know, Rob Reiner, 
James uh, Conn called him sadistic for that. Yeah. And, and Rob Reiner, you know, we talked about Stand By Me in an uh, earlier episode. You know, he seeks out actors who are already kind of there. You know, he knows mm-hmm. their personalities and he helped and he uses that to to work toward the character in the movie. And that very much, you know, I think was like a smart move for casting James Conn. But there was uh, on the set, it wasn't really controversial, but it, it is known that there was a there was a lot of difference between James Conn acting style and Kathy Bates acting style. Yeah, yeah. Kathy Bates came from the theater. She like she was used to doing a lot of rehearsals. James Conn is a very physical actor. He's spontaneous, and so he didn't want to rehearse a lot. This happens a lot on sets. Uh, you know, we t- I talked about this with uh, Blue Collar. You know, where it's like mm-hmm. you have two actors that are very different, and they need to get through a scene, but. One actor feels like, well, if I do it three times, I'm going to lose the vibe. I'm going to, sure, I'm going to, sure. you know, I'm, I'm going to get bored with the scene, and I'm not going to be able to give the best performance. But then another person feels they got to get warmed up, and it once on their fourth or fifth take. So I could see how that could be very clashing, you know, yeah. especially in a movie like this where you have to do these very physical moments where she's like lifting them up on the bed or like moving them somewhere. It's like having to do that over and over again. But think about that coming from a a stage perspective, because that's all you're doing is rehearsal constantly over and over. You have, you're, you're running the same show constantly over and over and over again. And it has to be spot on every time. So for Kathy Bates, this is just something to get it perfect and get it and get it right. And I, I know that she was, frustrated at some point and and went to Rob Reiner and, and, you know, expressed her frustration. And I think Rob Reiner's solution to that was, all right, go ahead and use that frustration in your character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, sure, yeah, go ahead. But but she did say that she was worried about the physical kind of aspects of the of the movie in one interview that I read. Because they they do do a lot of, I mean, you don't think yeah. of it as like stunt work, but there are, you know, they're fighting and they're going back and forth. And, uh, one in the of final the, scene. In the final scene. But there's a couple other scenes too where they're kind okay. of struggling with yeah, each other. Right, and Or she's like, you know, physically picking him up. They're not using stunt doubles for that. And he's probably like, you know, going dead weight while she's like having to move him around. And she said she was concerned about the physical aspects of the script, but she said she knew that James Conn was very athletic and he, you know, this is something that he was used to. And I did see one behind the scene footage where he's rolling, he's kind of charging her and he like jumps on her from the wheelchair wheelchair? in his wheelchair. And then like, you know, they they have like one of those like fall mats, you know, where she falls back on and he lands on her. And a lot of that rolling around the ground, I mean, that was real. I mean, they weren't using, like, stunt doubles for that. That was yeah. really them. I know that the, the physicality and the, the violence in the final scene really did uh, bother Kathy Bates at, yeah. at the time. And, I mean, now the woman's done a few seasons of American Horror Story. I imagine she's probably gotten over right. it at this point. Historically, Kathy Bates has been renowned for this performance. You know, she won an Oscar for it. It's what people uh, remember from the movie, but a lot of the movie hinges on James Conn's performance. And I think he, this is like a great performance of someone having to react to a character's madness. And he is playing the reserved character. And that seems like it could be the easier character to play, but in a lot of ways it's not because he's having to add some sort of like validation to everything that's happening. Like if you don't believe that he's scared, if you don't believe that he's annoyed, 
Um, mm-hmm. It just it's just kind of like a one way street. Kathy Bates and Annie's character. D- there are there are, there is this sort of like push and pull. It's like sometimes she's like quiet and sometimes she's depressed and sometimes she flies off the handle. But James Conn's sort of like stuck and he just kind of has to digest her character, digest this information. And we're and the movie's really about him. It's about what he's going yeah. through. And yeah. and we're watching the movie through his eyes. I mean, for the most part, we never really see Annie alone. Even when the sheriff comes. He kind of peeks around the corner. We never see what she's doing by herself. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time as an audience member with James Conn, with the Paul Sheldon character alone. And so I think that, you know, a lot of the the excitement, a lot of what keeps the movie going hinges on whether or not James Conn can can make a make his character inviting and make us want to be sympathetic and want to pull for him and hope that, you know, he can get through this thing alive and and uh you know, eventually like overcome the situation that he's in. And I think on the surface, if you're an actor reading this script, it can look like this is a movie that is is Kathy Bates. That is what it is. And I think that's why so many people turned it down. James Conn wasn't the first choice for this role. And that's the exact thing is that it's it's not just Kathy Bates. It is very much his story. And they are both equally in in this and um yeah i think it was looked at a lot of times like she's overshadowing or or men that were reading for this role thought that they would be upstaged you know by this woman who is kind of over the top at times but yeah that's not how this movie operates it's kind of amazing how evenly matched it is i love both of these performances but james kind i think like when you go back and watch us more closely you see a man who is slowly broken down over the course of like an hour and 40 minutes. And whether it is something very overt, like the hobbling scene or, you know, moments where it looks like Annie's going to hit him, something like that, that's much more in your face. Um, yes, reacting to those things, you can you can see that coming. But little things like uh, there's one of my favorite scenes is when he's he's been hoarding these pain pills, right? And and like stuffing them under his mattress with the intention that he's going to drug her one night and, and kill her by overdosing her. And in that scene, you know, it everything's working. You know, he tricks her out of the room. He slips all of the medication into her wine glass. And he's like, you see like him like actually... For a moment, he's actually happy because he's going to kill her, you know? But like she's excited about this dinner they're having together. And then she knocks over the wine glass. And in that moment, he can't show it. You know, he can't show his disappointment, but you know what happened. And just the look on his face is so perfect. It's a, it's a beautiful moment, a beautiful yeah, performance. He by does James this Conn. like look of like the energy draining <laughs> from his face. He does it several times in the movie yeah. and it's, it's very effective. Yeah. If you don't know James Conn, this is a, a great movie to start yeah. out with him. Well, one to talk finally just quickly about, before we go to our picks of the week, uh, just quickly about the special effects. The special effects were done mainly by Greg Nicotero, who many people know now from Walking Dead. Walking Dead, but also many from like many, dead many movies. movies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, special effects. All of the movies. dead movies. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't think this is such a special effects heavy movie, but there are some very effective scenes like, like you said, body horror, you know, his, his legs are like damaged, yeah. the hobbling scene. And then the vicious ending where they're having like a, basically a duel to the death. 
I mean, they're just like fighting tooth and nail and they cast like three different heads of, of Kathy Bates. Um, so she has they, her head slam against a typewriter. Yeah. And then she also, there's a scene where he, you know, where he kills her, like with the, the iron, it's a doorstop, doorstop of a misery, yeah. the pig. And then there's the they cast another head that had an open mouth so that James Conn could shove the burning pages down her throat, which is a very just it's it's just such a quick moment, a flash, but like mm-hmm. you really like just the, the the thought of it, you know, just like your imagination is just it's just such a vicious thing. And he really like shows how like mad he, you know, he's, yeah. he doesn't just want to kill her. He wants to like make her suffer like she's made him suffer. Yeah. And, uh, the effects are like pretty disturbing in this. Um, but those, those legs of his, after he's in the car accident yeah. and they just, she turns back the sheets and you see what his legs look like. It's gnarly. Yeah, and it one it, it, it too because it kind of sets up like how damaged he is. You know, it's like yeah. this guy clearly needs like to go to a hospital. And it doesn't. You know? It doesn't help too that when they're when she, you know, pulls back the sheets. She said, "When I was setting them, I could hear the bones move." You're God, like, oh, come yeah. on. This movie to me is like a perfect example of like special effects where they're used. You know, it's not the main thing. Isn't the effect? You know, it's not the you know they say in horror movies like the gag you know it's it's um it's there to you know help the story along to to sort of give you a visual effect that convinces you that what's happening is real and i think it's like very effective in this movie i I just don't know the ending scene like when they're fighting if it like went on any longer i don't know that i could handle it but i think it's like it goes on just long enough i feel like it's like very taut and like just perfect yeah i do have to say for the special effects that are in this movie they are minimal but they are done very well and not overdone and exactly what this movie would need we'll come back for some final thoughts on misery but we'll move on to our picks of the week so your pick of the week was fried green tomatoes which is like i said a movie that i saw when it first came out but i honestly you don't remember anything about it just like i I don't remember too much about it okay i i I have like some like vague imagery in my mind but um tell me about fried green tomatoes so yeah why not pick another book to movies co-starring kathy bates fried green tomatoes has always been kind of a favorite to me and it's about storytelling it's southern ladies sharing stories creating their own while weaving together two different time periods to tell this tale It feels like you're reading a fable, really. Something that's plausible enough to happen, but also has some magical, larger-than-life component. Not only starring powerhouse Kathy Bates, uh, but also the perfectly cast Mary Stuart Masterson and Mary Louise Parker, alongside two movie legends, Jessica Tandy and Cicely Tyson. All of these women are such amazing performers and always have been, and it's kind of incredible that this movie can still feel balanced with all of these heavy hitters in it. All right, so present day 1991, go go back in time with me there. Kathy Bates's delightful Evelyn character becomes enchanted by Jessica Tandy's ninny, an elderly woman full of stories from her adolescent years in her tiny, tiny hometown of Whistlestop, so Depression-era post-World War I. Her stories center around two women, Ruth and Iggy, best friends, kind of insinuated to be in a relationship. After a family tragedy, Mary Stuart Masterson's Iggy 
the more headstrong, slightly unruly of the two women, is forced out of her self-imposed isolation and ushered back into her family's life by her more demure, no-nonsense family friend, Ruth, Mary Louise Parker. These two have an undeniable chemistry together all throughout the movie. Storylines of domestic abuse, intense KKK-style racism, and an eventual murder become the center focus of the film. Now, while these are serious subjects, Fry Green Tomatoes is thoughtful when balancing intense, aching scenes with heartfelt moments of humor, friendship, and community, which kind of weave it all together. Period pieces with stomach-churning racist culture don't often deal with the subject like Fried Green Tomatoes did. Stan Shaw's Big George character and Cicely Tyson's Sipsy not only play Iggy and Ruth's close friends, but also the co-chefs at the Whistle Stop Cafe and play very important parts in the film's narrative. Iggy and Ruth repeatedly defend or ward off any obvious or implied harm directed at Big George or Sipsy. Thankfully, neither woman is touted as some great white knight, some hero. No, they're all family, and they treat each other as such equals, even defying law enforcement's racist requests or the KKK haunting nearby. That said, the film's climax regarding the murder of a white man may have had a much different outcome in a non-movie world, but again, remember how this is kind of a fable? Goodness wins out in this movie, and why, despite its immensely sad parts, Ninny's positivity and retelling her stories to Evelyn are so inspiring. Perhaps the biggest difference between the book and the movie is the dampening of the romantic relationship between Ruth and Iggy. Though it's never blatantly said in the novel, which would have actually been pretty accurate for the time period, I'm not mad about it not being overt in the movie. This was 1991, so remember, ultra-conservative, gay-hating Bush was in office, gay men felt abandoned during the AIDS crisis, it wasn't the greatest climate for LGBT folks, so having any lesbian storyline would have had a good chance of alienating moviegoers. And that's not how you create social change, and it's certainly not how you make a successful movie. However, Ruth and Iggy were positive visibility. LGBT folks were used to being the victim, being the murderer, the evildoer, but Ruth and Iggy loved each other and helped their community. They were each other's person, and it was beautiful. But it is possible to miss all of these meaningful moments that establish their relationship. And for those of you who haven't ever noticed the metaphor that happens in the movie, um, the scene where Ruth and Iggy have a food fight at the whistle stop, like back in the kitchen, yeah, that's the movie's basically only love scene. And that's not just me looking too deeply. The director, John Avnett, totally said so. Along with the movie's ambiguity of Ruth and Iggy's romance, Avnett intentionally wanted to make you question if Tandy's engrossing nursing home storyteller Ninny was actually the character of Iggy. To clarify, this is not a question in the novel. Ninny is not Iggy. I know this suggestion in the film totally irritated a lot of people that love the novel, but personally, I really like the mystery. Again, playing with that idea of this being a fable type story, because there are some things that make you think that it's 50-50, really. Like, she could be, she totally could not be. Some things would and wouldn't work, but I like that mystery. Jessica Tandy was truly a treasure in this film. She embodies an everlasting sense of hope. And heck, I even find myself feeling empowered by her inspirational tales of courage and strength and friendship, just like Evelyn. And identifying with the sweet innocence of Evelyn is is pretty easy for anyone who's ever felt unseen or just let down by the world. 
Kathy Bates was truly a pleasure to watch in this role, just as she is in Misery, just in a completely different way. The dewy visual quality of Fried Green Tomatoes flows right along with that storybook feel, like themes of injustice and community, racism, bonding, friendship, aging love, memories. These are all the things that ground this film, why anyone can relate to it. It's about the passage of time, the small towns we drive by and never think about again, and keeping up that tradition of storytelling so no one is ever really gone. It's not a film, you know, for women. It's a film which illustrates why sometimes women gravitate towards each other, and I think we all can probably learn something from that. Or, you know, watch it just to find out what's in Sipsy's secret sauce. If you've seen it, you know what I mean by that. But Fried Green Tomatoes is absolutely wonderful to watch. I need to borrow this from you. I gotta. I don't. I don't have that one available. Well, well is it on? Uh, is it streaming anywhere right now? It is not streaming anywhere. Okay. No, I. I will bring that over next time. All right. Yeah, I, I gotta revisit this one. I. I remember now that being like a back and forth between present and past. Mm-hmm. And I think it's you know it it sets you up. You know from the beginning it's it's going to be a tearjerker, but I don't think that it's cheap or a cop-out in that way. Like, it's yeah. it's a legit good story, and, um, yeah, it's um, always heartwarming. Um, I really want to hear about Dolores Claiborne. Talk, talk about tonal change yeah. here, but, but, man. But coincidentally, there yeah. is, a, is a movie that was adapted from a book and also takes place between the present and the past where someone's telling the story and they go back in time. We're always on the same wavelength. Yep. I love Dolores Claiborne. This yeah. movie is a struggle in some parts, but man, do I love it. It's it's a very grim tale. I won't lie. It's, uh, it's the, good, the second watch was, you know, it's one that I've gone back to several times, but, uh, you know, I always need some like distance after I watch it. Like I need some couple years before I can go back to it. But it is a great film. And I think it's like one of the more underrated movies of the 90s. You never really hear it pop up on, yeah. on movies people My mom brought watch. this one up and said that she really liked the movie and she really loved the book. Yeah. Something in the early 90s, Kathy Bates must have been feeling pretty good. She wins an Oscar for Misery. Stephen King, one of the most famous novelists in America, uh, had her in mind when he started writing the novel for Dolores Claiborne because she gave such a compelling performance in Misery. So Stephen King goes on to write the novel. It becomes the best-selling novel of 1992. And uh, and different from pretty much any book he had written, uh, the book to Dolores Claiborne has no chapters. It's just like one long monologue, which is kind of strange. After you see the movie, it kind of makes sense. I could visually see that working. Um, But it was adapted. Naturally, Kathy Bates... Um, ended up playing the lead role of Dolores Claiborne. The movie itself jumps back and forth between present day and 1975, present day 1995. The movie stars Kathy Bates in the lead role of Dolores Claiborne, her daughter in present day played by Jennifer Jason Lee. The story itself unravels like kind of a murder mystery. There's a lot of things at play here, but the long and short of it is, is that it's Dolores Claiborne has been accused of possibly murdering her employer who she's been employed to for 22 years as as a housekeeper and there's a detective who 20 years prior had arrested Dolores Claiborne for possibly killing her husband and there's always you know she lives in this small town in Maine and there's always been this suspicion that she did kill her husband but she was never proved she was never proven guilty and now this new case comes up 
and she's estranged from her daughter. But her, when her daughter finds out that this has happened, she comes in from New York to be by her mother's side. And then the story starts unraveling of abuse, um, of deception, uh, childhood trauma. And it's a very dark film. It's a very beautifully acted movie. Uh, there's a lot of moments in here where Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee really shine. And this movie is so opposite a performance from Misery. Uh, it's a very subdued. I mean, Kathy Bates is like this very weathered character who's like seen and been through a lot and is is sort of hardened and cold. It, you know, doesn't really show her emotions. Um, but is also like really funny in a way too. Like there's, you know, some humor in it, but, uh, I don't really want, this is a movie like I've, I've asked a lot of people if they've seen this and people didn't seem like they've seen this movie. So I don't really want to, this is one I really don't want to give away any spoilers. I know it's been out for like 20 something years, but, um, I think it's a movie that you should just watch, let it unfold. It is a very slowly paced film, but I think it really pays off. It really kind of sucks you in right away. You know, you're being told a story like this very intense, long story, and it's narrated uh, by Kathy Bates. In some ways, it's the their narration is done in a, a really nice way where she's talking to a character, but then we go back and you're still hearing her voice, her voice over, over the scenes. Um, and I think that they do a really interesting job of like going back and forth between present and past. It's not like just sort of this, sometimes it's like this hard stop and we as a, a audience member are sort of like caught off guard, but it's, it's done in a, I think a really interesting way. But this is a movie, I think it's pretty underseen for the nineties. I mean, it wasn't like it was some big bomb or anything like that, but um, it's just not a movie that I ever hear really mentioned from the 90s, and I don't really ever hear anybody talk about, especially when they're talking about um, Stephen King adaptations, you know, like Shawshank Redemption comes to mind, obviously Misery comes to mind. But I think this is, again, I would say in the upper, you know, deck of, of great Stephen King adaptations. Man, this is one I, when it's on TV, I will stop and like, let it play out from wherever from wherever it is. I really do enjoy this movie a lot. Is this movie available anywhere right now? Uh, no, it's not streaming anywhere, so you're kind of stuck with both Fried Green Tomatoes and <laughs> uh, Dolores Claiborne having either pay for it to rent or, or rent it from uh, the library. Yeah, or rent it from the library. Yeah, I'm sure it's available there. Yeah. Well, those are our picks of the week, Dolores Claiborne and Fried Green Tomatoes. We'll move on. This is your Murray moment. <laughs> Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna compensate my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking.
Back in 2009, actor Benicio Del Toro traveled to Havana, Cuba to receive the International Tomas Gutierrez Alia Prize for his gripping portrayal of the iconic Ernesto Che Guevara, who was a major player in the Cuban Revolution and became a counterculture symbol of rebellion. There's no doubt you've seen Che's face on various t-shirts. And if you don't know, Cuban-U.S. relations really haven't been good since the late 50s. Uh, trade embargoes were made worse by Bush Jr., and o- Obama tried um, to ease some of those restrictions, especially on Cuban U.S. citizens, um, with the hope of lessening any sourness of the past 50 years. That bit of history said, when Del Toro went to accept this award, he had some buddies in tow James Kahn of Misery, Robert Duvall, and our guy, Billy Murray. Were they like his strong arms in case anything went wrong? Did all of these legendary actors just happen to be on vacation at the same time? Apparently, the group traveled to Havana on a license issued by the U.S. Department of Treasury, according to a spokesperson for the group who asked to remain anonymous when asked by Reuters. The spokesperson claimed there were a few movie producers also along with the group, but they wouldn't name who they were, also giving a vague reason as to why everyone was together. In 2009, it would have been nearly impossible to make a movie in Cuba. So Khan, Duval, Billy, they're all apparently working on this, quote, research project, while Benicio, of course, was there to pick up the award. Sure, okay, maybe they're all just traveling under the same license. Maybe three of them just decided to hang out with Benicio. It's all really vague. James Khan, even when he was asked by Jimmy Kimmel, um, in an interview about this ultra-secret yet not-so-secret trip, Khan just said that they were just all going to a party together, but then quickly steers the conversation away from the topic and doesn't give any further information. Nevertheless, this intimate and all-too-brief award ceremony for Benicio was organized by the Cuban Union of Artists and Writers, and it was in this small room behind the group's headquarters in Havana. After Benicio accepted the award for his performance in this Steven Soderbergh four-hour epic, who would have guessed it? Billy breaks out into song, and more specifically into As Times Go By from Casablanca. Billy then jokingly passed around a hat to collect tips for the unknown pianist who accompanied him. This is a show that will never be able to be repeated, Del Toro said. Bill Murray singing, Robert Duvall sitting over there with his flowers, and James Caan sitting next to me. This is just going to stay forever in history. And this is kind of the definition of a Murray moment. Even though it leaves us wondering why this gang of guys were all hanging out together in Havana, sometimes imagining the what-ifs could be better than the actual truth. But who knows? I've yet to find out if anything ever came from this group's research project. But I don't know. It could have been for a movie. Maybe they just were there to support a friend. But I can't imagine that you would get this band of dudes together in Cuba for no reason. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And when you started off talking about Benicio de Toro, <laughs> I like did not. I was like, I don't know how this is going to connect. You were four very famous men. Why'd you do that? Just to go support Benicio? That's cool. Yeah. That's great. I just want to know. What What else did you do? Drink a lot of rum? I just want to know. Yeah. These are the these, these are the Murray moments that leave you with a question. Yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, do you have any final thoughts on misery before we close things out? I I know I have one final thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, what? I thought this was just me being totally confused and not understanding things, and then I brought it up to you, and you were like, wait a minute. 
and you also seem to to not be clear on this so about the two books in misery okay because i i uh the first time i watched rewatched this after a long time when we started doing this i was a little slightly confused by the fact that annie wilkes was reading his new manuscript that's not a misery book but then later on in the movie she starts reading the new misery book that has just come out from the store yes. but she has him burn his manuscript that she hasn't read totally but then she wants him to write a new misery book that's a follow up to the one that just came out that his where misery dies yeah yeah and so it's like there's two books happening right now like Paul Sheldon wrote two books like yeah. pretty close to each other and for some reason that was like unclear to me Okay. You know, now it's like very clear to me when I watch it, but I, I'm I'm curious just to our listeners, anyone out there, if, if that's, you know, if this is when you're listening to this now, if you're like, oh yeah, now this is uh, unclear to me or it makes more sense because I thought it was just me and then I brought it up to you and you're like, oh yeah, wait a minute, what? Like They're- keeping track of all of it. Wait, what book came out? Wait, what book is she burning? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, it's clear to me now after I watched it a few times, but I don't know if it's something I thought about back when I watched it back in the day, but the first rewatch was, uh, I was like slightly confused. Well, you know, Stephen King was cranking out books around this time, whether that was, you know, his dependency on drugs that was making him crank out a lot of books. I think it's just him and he's brilliant and there's a lot of information coming at you in this you know in the beginning yeah and i think only nine months transpired between misery and it coming out the book the books the book yeah the books so probably in stephen king world that's like nothing he just pretty prolific i just imagine him in like in a room just cranking out stuff not talking to anybody so it seems you know very possible that paul sheldon could have cranked out two books in the same year and for Paul Sheldon, who's who's written, I guess in total nine misery mo- books. How are you gonna write so many books and like write them well and have legions of fans and just be like, man, I just uh, I'm over it. Yeah, just over it. I don't know, man. He wanted to write more personal stuff. I guess so. Um, I've got one one quick final thought. We didn't mention um in the supporting cast, and she only has a couple scenes, but Lauren Bacall, who Man, I grew up with her as an actress in in many movies, and um, when you were growing up in like the fifties and 60s. yeah, when I was growing up in the fifties and sixties. Um, but Lauren Bacall uh, is in this movie as uh, Paul Sheldon's agent, and she is always majestic on screen. It doesn't really matter, you know, wh- what era that she's from. Um, I mean, gosh, I don't know. I think the first movie I ever saw her in was maybe like The Big Sleep. I think. Anyway, she, legendary actress and uh, love seeing her. Just kind of a callback to this. And I think her agent or something along these her agent contacted Rob Reiner and was like, what do you think about Lauren Bacall for this role? Or they're like, would you consider her? And he was would like, you consider what? her? And he's like, um, yes. Now. can Yes, of course. Um, so yeah, Lauren Bacall was uh, magnificent in this movie too. And also just a quick mention um, Barry Sonnenfeld was the DP for this, and there are plenty of, of beautiful shots that really help illustrate and further along the narrative of the story just visually. And he did do When Harry Met Sally with Rob Reiner as well, uh, but this was his final endeavor into being a DP before he went on to direct movies himself. 
Well, that does it for misery. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, we've we've kind of had a lot of super drama or cold weather movies so far for the year. So we're going to kind of like crank things up a little bit. Next episode, we'll be doing uh, Tony Scott's True Romance, which is a personal favorite of mine. It's one I've been hoping we would do for a long time. I know I say that about every other movie that we do for the podcast. But, <laughs> but that's why but we it's do true. them. But They're it's our true. favorites. They're our favorites. Yeah, yeah I, I can't wait to go back and revisit this one. And a uh, long time. Yeah. And so uh, thanks so much for listening. If you want to find us on social media, we're pretty active on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, if you want to check out back episodes, you can check out our archives at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. We also have a store there. Uh, where we have merchandise for the podcast and other goodies. Uh, all that money helps, uh, goes right back into the podcast, helps fund future episodes and helps us buy movies and pay for all the things we need to do to make this as professional and polished as possible. If you want to reach us directly, you can contact us at don'tpushballspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Justin's number one fan, Lindsay Reaper. Thanks for listening. Thank you.